Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Now, we all know that Paul McCartney loves a big ballad, and I love her yesterday, here, there and everywhere. We also know Paul McCartney loves to rock out. I saw her standing there, long, tall Sally, Elter Skelter, so many to choose from. But in 1987, when speaking to Mark Lewison, who has been on this podcast, he nailed his colours firmly to the mast when he said, you know my name, look up the number, is probably my favourite Beatles track, just because it's so insane, all the memories. Of course, we could blame this on the dynamite weed, but what was Paul thinking in 1987? Is it possible, Stephen, that Paul is right? This is the best Beatles song? This is the best Beatles song. Paul and I agree on this. Thank you for listening to (laughs) Nothing Is Real. It's, it's, I, 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 uh, that Lewis and book and particularly that interview was a gateway for me into the Beatles. And I read that interview in that book before I had 90% of the Beatles records. And when he said that about that song, I was like, I've never heard of that song. I don't know what that song is. I really need to, find out what what this sounds like it was and, you this was you i was thinking of when i read that i uh, thought uh, what what did yeah. the young jason carty think when he thought, <laughs> oh my god this is this yeah. must be. So, so, so i went off and got it and i you know I, I, i've said before i'm a child of the beatles on cd and past masters volume two is a an amazing record it but is, it ends it the end of the Beatles journey after all these fantastic, like Paperback Rider and Rain and, you know, B-Side Revolution. Hey, and you get to the end. It's like, okay, here we go. And this song comes on and you think, actually, he could be right because it, it, it shows that they could just do whatever they wanted. And isn't that the whole point of the Beatles? You just do whatever you want. I think that's, I think that's absolutely, absolutely the point that it's just a fun track. Uh, you get us, it, it encapsulates everything that's great about the Beatles. There's a kind of spontaneity, there's a humour, and they're not taking themselves seriously. And through one lens, it's almost kind of like the last thing they ever did. It's not quite, but it's it's the B-side of their last proper single, yep. which comes out just before the Let It Be album. And, you know, it's, it's certainly the last exclusive non-album track that gets released in, in the Beatles' lifetime. And... Uh, yeah, it's, it's just as unpredictable as anything. It it is. I mean, it 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 is. I I I can't remember when I first heard it. I, I mean, it must have been on as the B side of the Let It Be single. But they, they were sort of re released in sort of seventy eight on these 
uh, the little box, and I was buying these singles individually at the time. And uh, the, the back picture that they use for those late period Beatles is, is sort of very sour. The kind of four of them standing there, Paul is slightly off to one side in a waistcoat, and they're all kind of just scowling at the camera. And the, the, it, it bears no relation to the content of the song and it bears no relation to let it be which is is let it be yeah. and um <laughs> you know but Jeff, such is the magic of the band it's 100 beatles yeah and it's 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 suffused with that kind of it's got a bit of kind of the christmas records going yeah. on in it which is 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 fantastic and it's also in that small pantheon of songs that has Paul singing a bit and John singing a bit, yes. which is something else we've banged on about before. There's only a handful of them, like songs like All Together Now, they're quite unusual. And it is a Paul and John. I think we have notions that it's just a Paul and John thing, but they're all on it. They're all on it. They're all on it. The, the, it, it's, it it's probably the song that took the longest from start to finish to, to get from kind of first recording session uh, to commit committed to vinyl. Um, they are all on this song. Um, but like many things in the Beatles world, it contains multitudes. So the story of You Know My Name, Look Up the Number, is uh, quite a quite a trek, as you say, it at a very long gestation period. Where does the song start? Well, it starts as a John song. And uh, Paul talks about this in the Many Years From Now book. And he says, uh, John arrives one night with a song, which was basically a mantra. You know my name, look up the number. And he says, I never knew who he was aiming it at. It might have been an early signal to Yoko. Uh, it was John's original idea, and that was the complete lyric. He bought it in originally as a 15-minute chant when he was in space cadet mode. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the actual quote is when John was in space cadet mode. And he said, what are we going to do with this? And we said, okay, let's, let's just do it. Um, and th this seems to have been during the period when the work on Sgt. Pepper had finished, but the album hadn't come out. So we're kind of talking April, May uh, of 1967. And if you read the Ian MacDonald book, he has a lot to say about that period and about their collective state of mind. And he describes them as being stoned and aimless and unproductive. And he highlights the fact that since EMI are paying for the studio time, there's no discipline. And he, he uh, sort of earmarks this or benchmarks this period as being just uh, when they lost all sense of perspective and they started honouring the mistakes and they felt that they could just go into the studio and do anything. And that may be right, but it may be wrong. Well, we'll, we'll look at that collection of songs in a second because I often like to um, uh, take issue with things that Ian McDonnell says because he's, he's no fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he's, uh, yeah, the, the song, Lennon apparently saw the phrase on the cover of the, the London 1967 telephone directory. So everybody's radar was on in 1967 and it said on the front of the book, you know the name, look up the number, like it was a, a logo. And uh, he, Lennon said later to, to David Sheff, you know, it was a logo and I changed it. It was going to be a four tops kind of sound, which I find hard to understand. The chord changes are like that, but it never developed and we made a joke of it. Um, so, but it, it, as you say, it is in this period where every idea is worth, you know, is, is worth taking seriously and honouring. Um, and, and those weeks actually between finishing Pepper uh, around April 67 and Pepper coming out at the end of May, start of June 67. I think our, the, the, the songs that come out in that period are fantastic. I, I agree. I absolutely agree. And this is one of those points where I, I really 
depart from Ian McDonald. You know, I'm a great admirer of that book. Uh, it's very opinionated. You know, you're very opinionated. I'm very opinionated. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> well, all three of us are never going to agree. But I, I, I think if you look back at, at that period and the songs, you sort of maybe half a dozen or so songs that come out, they're great. Yeah, I'm just looking at a list of them here. So we have Magical Mystery Tour is recorded at the end of April. Baby, You're a Rich Man on the 11th of May. All together now on the 12th of May. Um, we'll come back to the, the three sessions for You Know My Name um, uh, in May and June. It's All Too Much is recorded on the 25th and 26th of May. And then just after Pepper's release, obviously, there's All You Need Is Love. That's as good a half dozen songs as anybody. That's a great run. And obviously, It's All Too Much is the best thing they ever recorded. So uh, it's... it's <laughs> uh, you could be right. I don't, I don't it's, well, it's it's their, you know, I'm I'm being facetious, but it's it's their, uh, for me, it is their kind of best piece of psychedelic uh, but, but it'd be interesting to make a playlist of those songs uh, because that's half an album right there. You know, in, in, the, in the weeks between Pepper being finished and coming out, they've made a really solid half album you know and i know we've talked before about what the late 67 album could have been yeah but why why would you be doing that you know you've you spent months recording what is your masterpiece you're just waiting for it to come out you know you and i record a podcast we you know we go and have a lie down and take a fortnight <laughs> off you know it's it's I, I need to go to a darkened room yeah after i've spent you know uh an an hour in my your company, company. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah but it's 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 if this is them being aimless, then bring it on, you know? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so how does the song then actually get recorded? Because it doesn't, as you say, it is, it is a, you know, at this stage in the game, you know, Magical Mystery Tour, although that's one of the songs they recorded as a, as a film, that's nowhere near coming into no. line. Good old Brian Epstein is still alive. And, you know, they, they don't have a project in mind so they are recording just for the sake of it just to see what's going on so they are they are during this period the only thing that they focused on that they have to do is all you need is love you know brian has signed them up to that tv special and they absolutely have to do that so that's what they're that's the only thing they're working on everything else is as you say they're just kind of trying things out um the the recording sessions for this song uh you know if, if you think about it they record it's all too much in two days essentially um mm. these are three sessions that that uh, on the 17th of may on the 7th and the 8th of june 1967 those are the first three sessions so yeah, and it's funny out of those six songs that they recorded the one that gets the most sessions is you know my people look up the ex number ex exactly exactly um so on, on the 17th they record the backing track and we're going to be talking i think we need to talk about you know the various parts of this song so they record the backing track for part one yeah. The so should we should we go through the parts? And by the way, what I find interesting, and people can pay attention to this, is they record the parts in order. This isn't some kind of ad hoc, although it sounds very laid back. There is a plan here, and the parts yes. of the song are recorded in order. So they 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 have a plan. Yeah. So part one, that's the sort of slow piano part that opens the song. And it's a really a kind of a a, a rock vocal. And again, yeah. if you think the vocal at that point uh it, it is being recorded but we'll come back to the fact that the vocals are done again and more vocals are added but essentially they're working on the the uh the, the instrumental section at this point so the first so part, part one is that intro bit that, that we all know intro bit yeah uh part two kicks in just after the one minute mark and that's the ska section yeah that, that doesn't make an appearance on the final uh b-side version but does appear on anthology three then uh 
at uh, part three kicks in at two minutes 15, which is Paul at his crooniest nightclub uh, session, like kind of proto uh, yep. Ma- Michael Palin, you know, yeah. gold lame jacket. Uh, Bill Murray kind of thing, maybe honest as well. Yeah, welcome to Sliders. That's part three. Yeah, part four at three minutes fifty, and we're we're approaching the four minute mark here. And you think yes. about, you know, this is they're doing two minute pop songs at this stage. So at three minutes fifty, the goons arrive, and we get yeah. the kind of uh, oh, hold on, hold on. Henry Cron and Minnie Bannister. We'll come back to to, to the goons, and then at uh, four minutes thirty, we're still going, and uh, <laughs> the John's uh, jazz scat singing uh, makes an appearance. Yeah, so they are the four, five bits. Four of them end up in the final record, five of them on the anthology version. Pay attention, there'll be a quiz at the end of the podcast. So they start recording it in order. 17th of May, they do the part one backing track. And, um, you know, as I said, the vibe is that it's a John and Paul joint, but it's John, Paul, George and Ringo, they're all there. Yep, they're all there. They're all working on this. Um, they, 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 they record uh, 10 takes, which I think is the best then the next day they they actually return to take nine and start adding overdubs uh then they record another five takes and at this point it's the guitar drums organ tambourine and flute you've got to imagine that was probably paul um (laughs) you know the multi-instrumentalist and it's a kind of unstructured jam at this at this stage um i'd like to hear all of that Yes. Well, this is this is this is this is what I'm going to say. Yeah. Where is this? This would be hilarious, I imagine, yeah. to listen to. Uh, you know, forget about Carnival of Light. This is uh, this is the, the lost uh, gold. <laughs> what was Ian McDonald thinking when they did a 20 minute version of one part of You Know My Name? Look up the number with a flute. That I know. Sounds like time well spent. That sounds like time well spent. Um, so then the 8th of June, they get back in the studio and they think, right, well, we've done that. We, we go on to part two and they they, they do 12 takes of uh, part two they have four attempts uh, at part three which is the nightclub section six attempts at part four and a single take of part five um and and we're done how did they come to an, an agreement about this like uh, you know paul has a point that this for him you know must bring back good memories yeah. like they decided okay okay we're going to do this version we're going to do a ska version we're going to do a nightclub version um because as we said it's all planned it's all recorded in in order but it's still all dependent you still can't i'd imagine in their position realize what the final thing is going to sound like you're no you're I'm- just kind of putting it together it's like one of those drawings you know when the game kids play where you draw a head and you fold it over and somebody then draws the body and you fold it over and then you see what it's like at the end. You just don't know until it's finished. You, you think even Paul can't have heard in his head, you know, you, we, we talk before about Paul being able to kind of visualise or hear in his head exactly what the finished article is going to look like. I mean, that can't, that can't be right. This is, this is, uh, does seem to be them making it up on the, on, on the spot. Um, but uh, yes, I, I, I think it's, I, this, is the, this is what I'd like to, these are the sessions I'd, like to, I'd really like to hear. And I suppose in one sense, you're coming off the back of Sgt. Pepper. They put all of this work in. They know, you know, Paul has often alluded to the fact that they knew that Sgt. Pepper was going to blow everybody away. Um, this is maybe them letting off steam. It's much more in the style of the Christmas records and that kind of loose yeah. uh, feeling in the, in, in the studio. Um, but yeah, they've obviously thought through you know, we'll have a nightclub section, we'll have a ska section. You know, ska isn't, this is a year before Obladi Obladada. This is not, ska is not their thing. 
it's it, the ska section, which is probably the most unfamiliar section because it's only on the anthology. And, and it, 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 we should say that the, the version of You Know My Name, Look Up the Number, the B-side version that we all know and love is in mono. It is a mono song. And the, the anthology three version, it, it's one of the instances where I think you could say the anthology version actually is the definitive version because it's in stereo. It's in stereo. And it has yeah. the missing section. And it is ska. Now, the biggest ska hit that I would think of at that time was My Boy Lollipop by Millie, which kind of broke the Island Records label, Chris Blackwell, and all of that. And that was a hit in 1964. So mm-hmm. ska wasn't a totally unknown quality, but it would have been, I think, to, unless you're of you know of the cognoscenti, it would have still been maybe a novelty. My boy Lollipop would have been seen as a novelty record by many, even though it's very influential. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I mean, in the UK, you know, you you, you that kind of blue beat uh, ska sound was emerging. You you know the Equals, uh, yeah, but you know, but they 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 don't have their first big hit until '68. But if you remember, I call your name. Mm-hmm. Has a kind of ska section in the middle where they just suddenly drop into yes, this. Yeah. Kind of, I think, Backbeat yeah, thing. yeah I, I, I think Ian McDonald calls it a kind of bone crunching uh, ska. It's a very kind of clumsy attempt at ska, but it, clearly it was something that you know they were aware of at the time. Um, yeah, and it does just it just does just sort of smack of them saying, you know, hey, we'll do a you know a, a, nowadays you would say we'll do a reggae version, we'll do a an acoustic version, we'll do a, a folk version, and it's um, I suppose you know this kind of. Uh, you know, Ella Fitzgerald doing cover versions of Beatles' Can't Buy Me Love and you, you've got jazz here. And I, I do sort of wonder, is it because they're aware of people recording their songs in different versions? Uh, that's, just... that's a good point. Yeah, they could uh, They could just... Well, well, listen, we know that their antenna was, was just everywhere at the time yeah. and so they would have known what it was. But it's still a very niche thing in 1967 to devote 20% of the song to that they're going to do a ska version. Maybe that's why... It was seen that uh, people should edit it out. I don't know why it didn't make the final version, but it's it's very striking. And uh, as I said, if you don't know the Anthology 3 version, folks, go off and dig it out. Um, uh, then they also record, as uh, at all the other sections. So there's the nightclub section as well. Yes. Um, and this is, you know, most people seem to say this is indebted to the Bonzo Dog Duda band because they were kind of doing this kind of thing. But I'm not clear that, that would necessarily be the case. I'm not sure that the Bonzos were really doing this type of thing at that time and how aware the Beatles would have been. And if you notice that the, the nightclub that they referenced is Schlagers. Welcome to Schlagers. Well, let's discuss this because you say it's Schlagers, uh, which you believe is a German reference. Yep. Uh, a lot of lyric sites, and I've always heard it as Slaggers um, because, you know, slagging would be a... Well, slagging is, is is an Irish and maybe also a Liverpudlian thing, where yeah. you affectionately, you know, say mean things to people yeah. you like. It's it's you know, it's it's like you, what the things you say to me on this podcast. It's like when I make fun of you for you know living through the the you know uh, the industrial revolution. But yeah. the the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, uh, so I've always heard this slaggers. Welcome to slaggers. You know, but it's slaggers. Slaggers. Welcome to slaggers. Don't know. Well, this is a German music type, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Schlager music is a kind of kitschy, easy listening pop that was like big in Germany. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know we kind of in the UK, we kind of tend to sort of, you know, look down on, on uh, European pop music, which is a terrible thing. And, and there's a lot of great music. But Schlager music is, 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 is a kind of kitschy sound, uh, uh, you know, big in the late 50s, early 60s. And you kind of think this, this, this is what 
would have been going on in Hamburg when they were there and in the charts in Germany and on the radio, this kind of stuff. So Yeah, I remember being in a record shop in Germany trying to talk to the man behind the counter about the stuff. And I think I was pronouncing it wrong. I think I said Schlager or something and he kept laughing at me because that means some kind of fight or something. And uh, it, it all uh, turned into a very strange uh, so event. He was, he was slagging you, in other words. He was slagging me. And I still think that's slaggers. I don't like, well, slaggers, slag. Well, what do you think, folks, and all the rest of that? Um, it does, uh, yeah, I can see why people would make the Bonzo Dog connection because... You know, they were doing a version, uh, particularly with Neil Innes on, on the piano, of that kind of, you know, fake, groovy, nightclub-style thing. But we're in June 67 here, and I'm not sure exactly... I know the, the, the Bonzos are breaking through and their antennae are open. I'm not sure exactly whether that would have been a real influence or not. I'm not well, sure. Well, this is true. But what we have to remember as well is that this is the musical section. What they're doing here is the music and the vocals will be revisited in 69. Uh, that we'll come right, to. of so, course, yes. But so maybe, but but it seems to me that the, the the nightclub groove and the voice that they're using here are kind of inextricably linked. You know, you, you know that you. It, it's very difficult for me to sort of, if there was an instrumental version of you know my name look up the number would you would you be able to not hear the the you know the 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 crooning and the nightclub sound but anyway the the bonzos uh yeah um for people that don't know they they're a sort of a, an english comedy group but with sort of ferociously talented musicians and people that could barely play their instruments um, all in the same group. So they're formed in 1962 by Vivian Stanchel and Rodney Slater um, of Mr. Slater's Parrot, if you know that song. Hello. <laughs> it was like having him in the room. Um, and uh, of course, Neil Innes uh, joined in 1963. And uh, they're kind of an art school Dadaist, uh, you know, I, I, it's hard to say those things in the 21st century without sounding incredibly self-conscious. And if you were to do that today, people would just mock you for for even attempting it. But it was a kind of genuine thing in the 60s, and they were um, they took pride in the fact that they could barely play their instruments, and they were listening to old 78 records from the 20s and the 30s, and then trying to replicate. Um, those their first appearance was in February. Can I just 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 to put pause yeah. on that for a sec? That might make them sound like great antiquarians, but they're listening to records from thirty or forty years ago, and we're on a podcast talking about music that's nearly sixty years old. I just thought I'd that, point that, that out. That's that's true. The irony, <laughs> the irony of the yeah, but, but we're continue, but continue, but we're 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 not trying to recreate uh, uh, Beatles songs on. Uh, uh, ukuleles and uh, tr trombones. Season seven stuff. Season seven. Um, so yeah, so they, they their first appearance is on a kids program, Blue Peter. Everyone knows Blue Peter. Um, performing Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey, which is ridiculous, <laughs> a ridiculous song. Um, but they get it I, I, off the back of that in April 66, they get a deal with Parlophone. So they're on the Beatles label. Um, their first single is a cover of a 1920 song called My Brother Makes the Noises for the Talkies, which is <laughs> hilariously funny, but not as funny, as, funny as, the as the B side, which is I'm going to bring a watermelon to my girl tonight, which is one of my favorite songs. It is very, very funny. It did not sell well, it has no. to be said. Um, the second single, Ali Oop which you will know these songs as soon as you hear them, and uh, Button Up Your Overcoat, which I think ended up in a, an ad for a building society in the 80s or 90s. Mm, don't know um, um, 
take good care of yourself with TSB. Was that the? Uh... Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, it it was it was kind of repurposed for that. That was in October '66. So there's certainly a connection with the label. And in late 1967, Paul. I think it was asked... a toothpaste. Sorry, you've triggered something in my brain. Anyway, Is that right? Met- okay, <laughs> toothpaste. Maybe maybe it was different in Ireland, but uh, take good care <laughs> okay. of yourself with TSP. With take good care of yourself with Mentadent P. Is that the? Uh- I could be wrong. Am I am I wrong? Anyway, I'm sure YouTube will answer this question. Continue. <laughs> in late you've, set, you've set off a memory map in my head. In late, oh dear. In, we 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 allow for pauses and uh, interruptions as these <laughs> memories bubble up. Um, in late '67, Paul asked them to appear in Magical Mystery Tour. Yes, and uh, they appear, and they're, they're they're singing a song called "Death Cab for Cutie." There's a stripper on stage, so I'm sure you've never watched that particular section of the the, the, the film. Um, this is a staggering performance, and the Bonzos aren't bad either. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's Vivian Stanchel is dressed in a gold lamé jacket, and essentially with a with a kind of chiffon cravat um essentially doing an elvis impression in 1967 who else was doing an elvis impression in 1967 you, you know elvis elvis wasn't even doing an elvis impression <laughs> in 1967. um so again you know we also remember paul that gets ivor cutler involved uh in magical mystery tour and and so uh, again he's he's and it works perfectly uh absolutely yeah. perfectly then in October 68, um, Neil Linus writes, I'm the Urban Spaceman, and Paul uh, produces that single, which is a hit. Or Gus Dudgeon produces it, if you're Gus Dudgeon. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's either Gus Dudgeon or Paul using the pseudonym Apollo C. Vermouth. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the Bonzo, the Bonzos were, were sort of a musician's band, you, you know, that kind of rock Oh, yeah, Aristo- aristocracy in the so, liked them a lot. Yeah, they were well liked by, by musicians. Uh, although Slater, I think it is, that says, you know, Lennon was not particularly enamored of their performance and was a bit, bit kind of standoffish uh, around the Magical Mystery Tour thing. But, you know, Clapton was a fan. Clapton appears. Um, Legs Larry Smith, uh, who who was, was in the band, became a great pal of George's. He's on Extra Texture. Uh, Wrote, he wrote a song about him for that. Uh, he also designed the sleeve art for Gone Tropo, and I suppose by extension, the sleeve art for he, Egypt Station. Yeah, yeah. See what um, And uh, you know, Neil Innes goes on to be uh, work with in the Grims with Mike McGear, and of course writes all of the songs for the Ruttles. Yeah, I mean the 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 the, the Bonzos uh, kind of weave their way in and out of all the right places. Like they're on they're on them. Um, you know, they're 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 involved with the pre Monty Python, Terry yes. Jones, Michael Palin, and yes. Eric Idle on a show called Do Not Adjust Your Set. And you know that feeds over into you know, Neil Innes becoming the seventh Python as as he gets called. Even though I think that annoys some of the Pythons. Yeah. The uh, you know Death Cab for Cutie also become a uh, the name a of a, a band twenty or thirty years later. His lead singer wrote the best song on the Monkees 2016 album, Good Times. He wrote Me and Magdalena. There you go. That's a great it's, song. All, it's all connected. It's, it's all, all connected. connected. It's all connected in your memory map. <laughs> um, and there's a, there's a massive, actually, I should say, there's a massive, apparently, Bonzo's box set coming. It might be 2022. Those people, mad as fish, who do these insane career retrospective mm-hmm. box sets of about, you know, 24 CDs of every single thing ever. There's a Bonzo's one of them coming. So if you like the Bonzo's, that's something to look I, I, I'll be buying that box set and forcing you to do a three or four part uh, podcast on that. 
perfectly fine with that. They are they are great. We saw we saw Neil Innes in uh, Dublin at a Beatles That's right. festival, and I was very annoyed because I have a great album called The History of the Bonzos. I think it came out in 1973. Uh, yeah. It's a beautiful kind of you find a vinyl a version of it. It's a beautiful album, and it's a perfect introduction uh, to the Bonzos. And if you like the Beatles, you should like the Bonzos. End of part one. Intermission. End of intermission. Part two. So getting back to, we are here to talk about You Know My Name, look up the number. We are. Um, uh, the, the, other, the other thing I like about the, the, the section we're talking about, the nightclub section, is the Dennis O'Bell thing. Because uh, Dennis O'Dell is a real person. He is. Um, and he's, the, he's a producer who was involved in A Hard Day's Night, How I Won the War, Magical Mystery Tour, Magic Christian. His last production job was on Heaven's Gate, the very unsuccessful uh, early 80s film. Uh, and so I just like Dennis O'Dell as being a nod to, to Dennis O'Dell. That always amuses me for some reason, you know, that in the kind of Lennon wordplay mode, that's where he, where he goes. Um, now, should we talk about the, the guest who turns up at the session, that, that third session on the 8th of June? Yes, so this is uh, Brian Jones. Now, it is funny to me, <laughs> I have to say, that Brian Jones, a significant generational figure in 1960s music, has an intersection with the Beatles, who were the most culturally significant group of the 1960s and perhaps of the, most definitely of the, the 20th century, and that their one intersection is that he appears on the back end of You Know My Name, Look Up the Number, playing the most honky sax I've ever heard, and honky in all senses of the word. And, yes. uh, and, uh, and that's it. That's the main Rolling Stones contribution to a Beatles record. I think that's beautiful. It is. I think, I think, as I, I think I'm right in saying it is the only Beatles session to which a Rolling Stone uh, makes yeah. any contribution. Jagger is, is wafting around in the background on the... All You Need, all you is, need love. is Love. Yeah. But, I mean, this is... And, and again, I, I remember... You know, the rumor being uh, in the kind of late 70s, early 80s, Brian Jones is on, this, is, is on this track. And then it became, oh, yes, but it's not the Brian Jones. It's another Brian yeah. Jones. It's a kind of session player called Brian Jones. And for years I thought, no, well, yeah, that's just a kind of coincidence and it's not actually the Brian Jones. And it was really only when Past Masters and the Lewis and Sessions book comes out that you suddenly thought, my God, yeah, it is. It's Brian Jones. And of all yeah, the Lewis stuff... Asks him. <laughs> Was that Brian Jones? Mac is like, yeah. Yeah. And of all the stones, of all the stones, you think Brian Jones? But, you know, you would think, well, logically, Mick was hanging around. Keith was hanging around. Um, why Brian? And uh, Paul talks about this because, again, surprisingly, Paul seems to be the connection. Um, yeah. Uh, and again, perhaps you might think Brian Jones and John would be the natural pairing, but it's actually Paul. And Paul, in many years from now, I'm just going to, he describes this. He said he arrived at Abbey Road in his big Afghan coat, and you can kind of picture that from 67, mm -hmm. Brian. Um, he was always nervous, a little insecure, and he was really nervous that night because he's walking in on a Beatles session. He was nervous to the point of shaking. Uh, I used to like Brian a lot. I thought it would be a fun idea to have him. And I naturally thought he'd bring a guitar along and maybe chung along and do some nice rhythm guitar, a little bit of electric 12 string, something like that. But to our surprise, he brought a saxophone. He opened up his sax case and started putting a reed in and warming up, playing a little bit. He was a really ropey sax player. So I thought, aha, we've got just the tune. So that almost makes it sound as if 
they were planning on recording something, Brian, anything. Brian turns up with a saxophone and they think, uh-oh, right, let's dig out that comedy tape and we'll get Brian on that. It, it, it is huge to him using that. You know, yeah, you find Brian Jones song. He's like, you'd be delighted to know, lads, I brought my saxophone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It'd be like, you know, Eric Clapton, I brought my trombone, you know? Yes, it's, it's, it's crazy. So, I mean, but Brian, Brian Jones in 1967 was in a very odd space uh and well, it's Brian jones i feel he's like we'll talk about where he was at that point in time but he he kind of i feel he's become forgotten you know yeah is that is that uh, because definitely you know not just when i know he, he him leaving the stones and his death happened very close sequentially yeah. in 69 but you know rolling stones 2021 is basically a, a post brian jones stones and uh, i feel that you know the the kind of the 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 power of the stones since 1969 has kind of overshadowed brian jones an awful lot and he gets you know occasionally mick and keith will say things like oh he was a beautiful cat and all that kind of malarkey yeah. but and, and you know from stories at the time he was mercurial he had many children from many women he was all over the place and uh you know got into lots of uh escapades but he was uh the man he was he was he was the man he was the key man so he he essentially was the founder of the band yeah. um there's andrew lou goldham who was their sort of manager producer uh he is he's an absolutely fantastic book if you i don't know if you ever read it just called stoned years um, ago yeah just at a fantastic fantastic book and he says you know he was always a loner uh, as early as 1963 he was traveling separately from the rest of the band stayed at different hotels demanding extra money um and of course you have that sort of story that uh, uh lou golden locks mick and keith in a room until they start yes. writing songs and um he he does say you know jones felt alienated because he was not a songwriter and you were saying you know that occasionally mick and keith will say oh you know brian he was a he was a cool cat and blah 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 life in the stones is very harsh and in 19 an interview with mick gave in 1995 he said to be honest, Brian had no talent for writing songs. None. I've never known a guy with less talent for songwriting. I think that's that's pretty harsh. So yeah. it, it, they, they're this clear split when the uh, uh, Jagger Richards songwriting axis emerges and they start having hits and they start moving towards uh, commercial stuff and, and they, they, they start chasing the commercial stuff uh, success of the Beatles. And then in March... 1967 if we're kind of being alive to the timeline here in march 1967 anita pallenberg jones long-term girlfriend two years they've been together she leaves him for keith that's not nice that's not nice that's not nice yeah. um and that's generally seen as a very kind of important trigger for for a fairly rapid decline after that and again if you read some of the biographies the manner in which she leaves him for keith is really quite something um he 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 goes into a decline his last appearance really with the stones is in rock and roll circus which is he's barely present yeah um he, he leaves the band by the first week in july he's dead drowns in a swimming pool and again you have that whole was he killed was it accidental was it murder or whatever but bill wyman um, sort of says, you know, not Brian formed the band. He chose the members. He named the band. He chose the music. He got us gigs. He was very influential. And then he just slowly lost it. He was highly intelligent and just wasted it and blew it all away. So he's he's an incredibly 
tragic figure, but he was arguably the most talented musically. Well, you, you look for parallels, you look at different ways of doing things, and you think, well, you know, Brian Jones is to the Stones almost like what Sid Barrett is to Floyd. You know, they yeah. couldn't have existed without him, but they had to become, you know, they had to annex him in order to become this other kind of thing. The other kind of parallel that's interesting to, to think about is, you know, Jagger and Richards versus Brian Jones and comparing that to Lennon and McCartney versus Harrison, where, you know, there isn't any, uh, you know, we can get into, you know, the the, the politics of the latter era, uh, Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, but there was never any kind of uh, clear cut go away, George, <laughs> which there seems to have been with uh, Brian Jones. I, I, I think the, the, I think Mick and Keith were much more ruthless in their exclusion of Brian Jones. Yeah. Um, and there's a financial reason for that because the songwriters get the royalties, but also they're taking the band in a, in a, in a direction, you know, Brian was the blues purist. Um, the irony is he became the kind of go-to multi-instrumentalist. So if you wanted a bit of sitar on, on, uh, painted black, black, yeah. If you want kind of harpsichord, if you want mellotron, if you want whatever you want. And I suppose that extends to him parping his way through a (laughs) Beatles, Beatles session. Um, but again, all, all, all of these things, how did he possibly be, you know, he's a blues purist. He's into, he's a serious, hard drug addict. He's womanizer. He drinks. He's Paul's best mate. That, that, it seems very counterintuitive. Well, I think, I think Paul is dealing with, you know, Brian Jones in small doses. And I bet if you're, if you're hanging around the whatever the bag of nails on a Thursday night and Brian Jones is there, it's great crack to spend an hour or two with Brian Jones. You're not there sorting out his diary, which I'm sure no. would be a bit of a head wrecker. No. Um, so I can see why Paul, who in this mo at this time is full on man about London town, eleven years before London Town, the album, is uh is kind of, you know, saying, Yeah, Brian Jones, he's on the scene and I enjoy spending time with him, end of, you know. Yeah, I mean, he says again, he says in many years from now, Brian always had a pleasant word. That's not the report you get from anybody <laughs> no. else. Uh, we got on like a house on fire. He had a good old sense of humour. I remember laughing and giggling a lot with him. I imagine dynamite weed was involved. I think yep. a lot of people used to get a bit annoyed with him when he was, but he was smashing. I mean, who? <laughs> there is no one else in the world. Uh, oh, describes smashing. 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 Well. The other, the other, uh, the other question mark is, you know, there's, there's always been the thing about 1967 and cocaine and the Beatles, yes. and you know, this is kind of a, a big taboo almost maybe to talk about, but that that, that they they were doing what they wanted in 67. Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, and and all of this leads to the fact that on the 10th of May, and again, be conscious of the timeline here, this this 8th of June session, on the 10th of May, Brian is busted by Norman. Culture of the yard, mm. um, boo offer a hash. Crooked copper, crooked cop. Uh, can we say that? Um, yeah, he was convicted He's still of something. Alive. He's written a book. I haven't bought. Yeah. It's the, it's the one book I'm not prepared to buy. Um, busted but for hash. He admits all his crimes. Yeah, so uh, busted for hash and cocaine. Uh, but this was on the same day that Mick and Keith were in court. Uh, opting for a jury trial arising out of the Redlands bust, which was a kind of, you know, there was heroin involved there. So that was a much mm. more serious uh, 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 situation for them. But Brian's lawyers essentially tell him, you've got to stay away from Mick and Keith because everyone was certain 
they were going to get convicted. They were going to go to prison. Brian's lawyers are trying to put some distance uh, between their client and Mick and Keith. And uh, so Brian becomes this sort of isolated, more isolated figure in the Stones. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And, you know, what I think we can all agree on is that the Rolling Stones made their best music in 1967. That's just a fact. That's so, just a fact. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I think, we, I think we're losing. We're losing. People are switching off or throwing things at their wireless. Um, but John and Paul appear on the uh, the We Love You single. Yes. Um, so the, they are in each other's pockets. And um, the Stones are still very much in a, and, you know, Paul has said this even up to this day, of copying the Beatles or seeing where the Beatles are going. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're all London based. Yeah. This is a big, I mean, this is a, Paul says this, John was very, uh, you know, on that Jan Wenner interview, yeah. he's been saying, you know, if you want to look at the stones, you look at, we were doing uh, two years later, a year after at the stones uh, doing it. Um, well, but 1967 is obviously the big line in the sand between pop and rock. And obviously, if anyone's listened to the podcast before, will know I'm a bit of a pop man. So I like 67 pop stones. I like She's a Rainbow and all that kind of Ruby Tuesday type stuff. And, uh, you know, I, 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 Satanic Majesties is a bit of a lark and a bit of a mess, but, I'll, you know, I enjoy it. And, you know, it doesn't have the dull rock orthodoxy that takes over right. as we trumble into the 1970s. So I think I think there's a lot to be said for 67 pop stones. It's it's the fun stones. Yeah, it's the fun stones. It's 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 the it's the gap between you've got the kind of the blues stones. You've got the uh, appallingly misogynistic uh uh, 65, 66 stones. Then you've got the pop stones. Then you've got the appallingly misogynistic Misogyn- blues <laughs> stones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, some girls album. And so it goes. So the, yeah, you can demarcate the gross, <laughs> the, what they had, there are certain things that are consistent with the stones and the appalling misogyny is, is one, but no, uh, uh, satanic majesties. We're going to do 30 minutes on satanic majesties. I think if you took, the kind of long rambling, let's sing this all together nonsense. Mm. Um, and you, you put on uh, We Love You, Dandelion, and maybe pulled Child of the Moon forward from the, or pull, pulled it back. It's a great album. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, Citadel, uh, uh, two, tw- two, tw- uh, 2000 Light Years From Home. But they're fantastic. Even uh, uh, In Another Land, which is Bill Wyman's 
only yeah. uh, only lead vocal for a Stones uh, track. Yeah, it's great. But 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 yeah, the the John and Paul appear on "We Love You," mm. uh, which comes out in August. Uh, Dandelion on the B side, great song. This is. Um, the the sort of response, if you look at the video, this is a response to the court cases and all the rest of it. Um, uh, maybe a response to All You Need Is Love. Lennon is kind of assisting on 1970. Yes, this is just them copying uh, All You Need Is Love. Philip Norman mm-hmm. says, We Love, we love You uh, is a single that loses all ironic point in its feeble attempt to copy All You Need Is Love, uh, adding that it was part of Jagger's ongoing obsession with aligning himself with the Beatles' flower power idealism and trying to match the mystical quality of the band Sgt. Pepper, Lonely Hearts Club album. But, as we know, Philip Norman is wrong about everything. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm much more in the John Harris from a camp from Mojo in 2002 that he says it's Charms Our Legion, Nicky Hopkins' uh, piano, its opening chorus of sarcastic falsetto voices, Mellotron, whose eeriness cannot help but evoke the idea of a conspiracy. It is one of their best singles, and it has that piano riff that if you get that into your head, yeah, it's not going to go away. I, I always thought We Love You was kind of a bit sarky, you know? A bit sort of, you know, cynical yeah. in a way. And I kind of like it for that, you know? I think it's 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 it, it manages to straddle both camps. Um, but yeah, as you say, Paul reaches out to Brian, we think, in the context of all these court cases and Jagger and Richards going off to jail and him being busted and all the rest to say, hey, come along to a session sometime. We'll cut you yeah. some slack. We'll have some fun. Exactly. So he he he, he says, basically, he, he rings him up uh, and says, you know, it, it's a kind of to, to console him uh, after the bust. And this leads to the invitation to come, come along to a session. And I mean, that's that's quite a thing you know this is before clapton comes in before billy preston is there you know yeah. they're they're kind of reaching out all you need is love is kind of is a different thing uh it's it's kind of like a party and it's just people in a you know in the background but yeah this is this is uh this is quite a thing yeah and it's a, yeah as you say it's it's before it's 18 months before or a year before um uh, Clapton uh, on, on my guitar, Gently Weep. So it's kind of the first instance of a peer being brought in to say, hey, just come along, jam, and all the rest. Um, so w- w- there is one other influence, though, on this song that we, we need to talk about. And I'm mindful of time, but obviously section four is the Goon Show section. Yes, and I, I, I can do two... I, I can do... I'm going to do two, two or three hours <laughs> on the on the Goons. Okay, so you, you, you must be a Goons fan. You're far too young to be a Goons fan. I, here's what I'll say about the Goons. Totally respect them, totally acknowledge their influence. Um, I was brought as a very young kid in the early 80s to see Spike Milligan in Dublin's Gaiety Theatre. Wow, I've never seen... Yeah, do a one-man show. And, you know, my parents didn't bring me to a lot of... Crazy things. Yeah, yeah, and that was a crazy thing they brought me to. And, you know, my main memory of it was that he did a, a routine or a bit where he just sat on a chair for what seemed like an eternity and just repeated the phrase, I think, oh, dearie me, just over and over again. And thinking that this was quite, quite strange. <laughs> and uh, so uh, so I, I totally dig the goons. I, I guess I don't listen to a lot of the goons. I, about, about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, when we were downloading all our stuff yeah. uh, illegally, I yeah. downloaded every Goon show and listened to a few of them. And I was like, okay, I get it. But I'm just, I'm not living in the 1950s, trying to recover from the war, eating a sandwich covered in lard or whatever it is people did back then. And, uh, you know, so the context of it was lost on me. But I think what they did was amazing and revolutionary. Is that fair enough? That's fair enough. But could I just say, I think we're kind of probably not far away from 
eating sandwiches covered from lard and recovering from a war so some descriptions so I think I, I, should, I, uh, yeah. I, I think we should reach back do you still have those goons uh, recordings do, yeah, well could you, could, 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 could you just because uh, <laughs> I was I was bemoaning the fact last night I was I was trying to find online and there's like one or two episodes available on Spotify for some reason but they're they're not uh, I couldn't find them um, I was a huge goons fan in the early 80s, um, mm. you know, before political correctness had really kicked in, because what I would say is they are really of <laughs> their time and in terms particularly of kind of, you know, and this is a charge leveled at Spike Milligan uh, and Peter Sellers, you know, particularly in terms of kind of this, the racist aspect, I, I don't think you could describe them as being racist in the, in, in the sense that we use that today. But there no. is a, there is definitely a racist that where, where there's that sort of British uh, mocking of, uh, you know, the in, Indian subcontinent of the Chinese. Yes, they they, they have a very strong, uh, you know, obviously the core of the, the goons were Peter Sellers, Harry Seacombe and Spike Milligan, and plus or minus Michael Benteen in the early days. Yeah. But their, their, their comedy was informed by their involvement in World War II. Milligan in particular had yes. what we might call today some kind of post-traumatic stress related to being involved in World War II and his mental health, we could say, informed his comedy throughout all his life. But they, apart from being informed by World War II, they had a very unusual or specific view of what you might say called the, the, the British Empire as was. And, uh, you know, using that, you know, and you, you know, yeah, it wouldn't stand up today, but some no. of it might have been more to do with mocking the empire as a whole, as opposed to people particularly. Maybe, maybe, maybe. No, I think, I think that's right. I think, I think so just, just for people that aren't familiar, it, this was a radio show that runs from mm. 1951 to 1960. And as you say, it's essentially a trio. Spike Milligan is largely responsible for the scripts uh, eric sykes mm -hmm. a sort of uh, english comedian is involved as well and the script side they were hugely popular um after the war um uh, and i think you're right they're mocking the empire they're mocking the people who are in charge of the country but they're also kind of they, they're mocking everybody they were hugely influential every teenager in the 50s um was just obsessed with the guns except my dad who no time no time for them whatsoever my mother is a huge um Goons fan. It's all non-stop puns, non-sequiturs, absurdities. It's sneaking stuff past the censor. I, I first heard the uh, Hugh Jampton uh, joke <laughs> yes. that we mentioned uh, uh, that, you know, get these things, these past. Um, supposedly, uh, on the 9th of October, 1956, John Lennon bought two 78 RPM singles, his 16th birthday, Hound Dog uh, by Elvis Presley and the Ying Tong song by the Goons, which is written by Spike Milligan. I can find no corroboration for that whatsoever, but it's on the internet, so it must be true. Well, it would certainly, uh, you know, uh, those two songs would essentially be the Alpha and Omega of John Lennon, to be honest. So it sounds kind of perfect. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you got that piece that, that he wrote for Mersey Beat in 1961 about the man on the flaming pie and yeah. arriving. Given. That, 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 that's, that's a goon style yeah. riff. And the Christmas records are all goony the, as well. Particularly that pantomime, 1967. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, 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 that little kind of play that they do, uh, mm. you know, about matches and... and, and you know, the, the, all of that is just the goons. It prefigures Python. Um, Milligan's wordplay is all over the Lennon uh, books. Um, yeah. You know, and they, they all, you know, George becomes a huge uh, Python fan. Uh, you, you know, Paul acknowledges 
uh, the, the, the influence of, of, of the goons. Um, fun fact, the Nurk Twins. Oh, yeah. The Nurk Twins actually comes from a character on a goon show. Right. So in October 1965, in that edition of the Beatles book, which is number 27, trivia fans, uh, that's your pub quiz question. <laughs> uh, Jim Mack, Jim McCartney, Paul's dad, recalls that Paul and Mike were known to their friends as the Nurk twins, but says, I have no idea why. But Fred Nurk was a minor character voiced by Peter Sellers, who appeared in a couple of episodes. Uh, notably, and you probably have this, uh, The Affair of the Lone Banana, probably your favourite episode. Uh, I'd have to say so, yes, absolutely. absolutely. Does, does somebody fall in the water? Is that the joke? I don't know. That, that's... <laughs> um, uh, everybody falls in the water. Um, yeah. Um, but but also, also, two of the main external influences on the Beatles in the 60s come from the Gooniverse, so to speak. Good. Which I see are, what you did there. Uh, Dick Lester and George Martin. Yes, yes. So uh, the, the involvement with George Martin. George, we know that Parlophone was originally a sort of a comedy uh, label and those Bernard Cribbins records and things like that. But he had also produced individual recordings by members of the Goons. Now, not the Goons themselves, but he had done uh, recordings with uh, Spike Milligan and notably um, Peter Sellers. Uh, mm. And the Beatles were aware of this. You know, they would have seen his name as the producer um, and they were aware of that connection. And uh, this was a kind of bond. You know, Martin is a much older person of a different background, but they have this common yeah uh, and, and they must have known that from the day they met him they must have yes. noticed the name because they they were known for looking at the details on on records they were little you know record nerds you know before it became cool absolutely absolutely and uh the, the goon show scripts come out in book form in 1972 and john lennon actually writes a review for the new york times of the book and he holds forth at great length about how influential they were uh the daily howl or the and he also um references the fact that dick lester um directed the tv version of the goon show which is called a show called fred and you think again there's a kind of python-esque yeah uh, you know it comes from that and uh also directed uh the running jumping standing still film um which yes. involved, involved spike milligan and peter Sullivan. Which appears on some of the Hard Days Night DVDs. Um, yeah, the, the 1972 piece, yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to it. But yeah, John writes a full-on column review of the Goon Show scripts. And he says, you know, it influenced his newspaper, The Daily Howl, how it affected his writing. Um, and, you know, obviously, as the Beatles become megastars themselves, you know, the Goons come into their universe. So Peter Sellers becomes a pal of Ringo's. He does his version of A Hard Day's Night as Richard III, which becomes a novelty hit. He appears on the associated TV special, The Songs of Lennon McCartney. He does the magic Christian with Ringo later on. And then Spike Milligan is the man who creates the World Wildlife Fund uh, record, which gave us uh, the original Across the Universe. So, you know. It's all connected. It's all connected. And uh, you told me an interesting fact, which was that they invented the word lurgy. Yes. I mean, everybody, well, certainly everybody in the UK, Ireland, you know, he's down with the lurgy or he's got the lurgy. That was a completely made up word that Spike Milligan came up with to mean sick. Yeah. 
It's it's apparently what's known. Uh, I, I was looking this up on Wikipedia as a nonce word. A nonce word is a word <laughs> that is created. I know that is created for a specific purpose. So that's what lurgy is. There you go, uh, lurgy. So yeah, that, that, I, I did not know lurgy came from the goons. I just thought it was just one of those words. Um, but if I can say, you know, when we started uh, this podcast about seven hours ago, we were talking about you know my name. Look up the number. I can't remember. <laughs> so, uh, so far they've recorded five sessions, not many vocals, uh, five sections across three sessions, not really done any vocals. And so back in 1967, it just goes onto a shelf. Yes, yes. Um, so you think, well, what happened next? They've got this track, uh, they get kind of, they, John's got this mantra idea. Um, nothing. They just shelve it. It's ignored for Magical Mystery Tour. It's ignored for Yellow Submarine. You think it would be a sure thing for either of those um either of those projects yeah well you know it's it, they don't return to it until the 30th of april 1969 and it could have been you know because they you know all together now is one of the songs from that session and it's all too much is one of the songs from that section pre you know in that pepper uh gap uh that do get appropriated for yellow submarine maybe you know they would have uh you know it would have popped onto their radar when they were looking at those songs and you know they they they, they remembered it was knocking around but yeah it doesn't actually get touched again until the 30th of April 1969, which uh, is John and Paul uh, without George and Ringo are involved in a session. And yeah. again, to, to you know, we've done two episodes on the ballad of John and Yoko and an episode on Old Brown Shoe and all the rest. April 1969, it's an odd thing for them to be doing on the 30th of April 1969. It really, it really, really is. And I, I have no real explanation for why this gets dug out at this point and it, it's a very rare example of them going back to archival tape boxes and 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 kind of reworking something and we need to get mark lewison back on to uh, he's been on the podcast uh we need to get him we need to get him back on but um if we kind of look at the timeline you're a great man for a timeline um a good timeline. if we look at what is happening just because uh, you know you make the point uh, very you know, validly that we look at little kind of sections of the Beatle history or in years or in months or and, and you look at things in isolation. So if we look at the 31st of March, George and Patty are in court. 69. Yeah. 69. George and Patty are in court. John and Yoko are in bed in Vienna. Um, 2nd of April, John and Paul are meeting with the bankers to plot their sort of strategy to secure control of Northern songs. And it's around this time that it emerges that Paul has been buying up extra shares and actually now holds a bigger stake in that company than John. The other thing that's interesting is that George holds no shares. He has hmm. previously sold his shares, but the person who, who does have shares is Patty. She has a thousand shares in her own name. I, I, I would assume that's a, a gift. Um, or a tax dodge. Or a tax dodge. I'd, 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 I'd quite like <laughs> that. I'd like a thousand shares in Northern songs. 10th of April, the Beatles reject the latest offer from Lou Grade. 14th of April, John and Paul and smiling. Yoko, smiling. Record the ballad of John and Yoko. 15th of April, and I'll say this because I know you're children, John makes a <laughs> statement that he's not going to be fucked around by men in suits. <laughs> Which is just, if you're an investor, that's just what you want your cash guy to be saying. <laughs> so this, this rattles the other shareholders uh, who are called the consortium in a kind of Robert Ludlum style uh, 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 brand. Um, and 
this is this statement is seen as a major factor uh, in them ultimately losing control of the company. But notwithstanding that, next couple of days they're recording Old Brown Shoe. Um, and then on the 20th of April, the, the, if you've seen the Barry Miles diary book, he describes mm-hmm. this as being the day there is a massive row when Paul refuses to put up his shares in Northern Songs as collateral for a loan which they need to, to mount their bid for the, uh, the consortium's shares. And this is, if they got those shares, that's what would have given them control uh, uh, and they would have beaten Lou Grade. And Alan Klein pitches in mm-hmm. by putting up his £650,000 shareholding in MGM as collateral. And you've got to ask yourself, what was Paul thinking? Why would he not put up the shares in, the, in Northern Songs to, to, to fund that loan? You know, yeah, it's. Uh, I would have to think it's just naivety. He just doesn't understand how these things work. Yeah. So the twenty fourth of April, they there's, there's all this stuff going on with Nams following Brian's death, and they finalise a deal with Nams. Um, and that day, they make their two point one million pound offer to the consortium. Twenty sixth of April, Jane Ash's father passes away. Yeah. Um, sure. 29th of April, Paul overdubs his vocals on Oh Darling. So again, just where this is in the Abbey Road recording sessions, 30th of April, they put an ad in the papers saying, if you, if the consortium sell their shares to us, we will extend our uh, um, contract with Northern Songs. And uh, they overdub guitar solo on Let It Be. And John and Paul and Mal work on You Know My Name. Look up the number. Crazy way to end an intense month. Their days were like weeks. Their weeks were like months. Their months were like years. Yeah. Um, um, you know, it's come out that Paul owns more shares. He will not assist them raising a loan. Klein steps in, so it's an open goal for Klein to kind of say, "Look at me. I'm a, I'm, I'm the good guy here. I'm prepared to put up my shares." They're they're falling apart in a business uh, uh, context. There's been this brief kind of rapprochement to uh, for Ballad of John and Yoko but then they're back at it again and it's all about the business and then they say you know what do you remember that thing we did with Brian Jones uh, uh, a lot of years back why, why don't we just get that and hey Mal come and we'll uh, put some vocals on this it's not uh, and aside from mixing this is the last session for you know my name look up the yep. number where they're doing all these vocals together and Mal's job is that he has to dig gravel uh, with a shovel, with a shovel, and kind of in a really kind of, he's, he's kind of turning it over, and you think, well, do EMI just have this stuff lying around? You know, do they just kind of say, oh yeah, that's in the cupboard in Studio Two. Go and get the gravel over there beside an anvil that we have for no reason whatsoever, which you won't yeah. be playing later in the year. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's kind of what they're talking about. <laughs> it's, okay, yeah. So is John and Paul basically doing silly voices and Mal turning gravel over in a in a tray with a shovel? Um, and we have Nick Nick Webb, who's the second engineer. He he says. Uh, John and Paul weren't always getting along that well at the time, but for this song, they went out onto the studio floor and sang together around one microphone. Even at this time, I was thinking, what are they doing with this track, uh, recording these uh, funny bits onto this quaint song? But it was a fun track to do. And you think, is it is it just some kind of displacement activity? Yeah, it is must it, be. Is it, you know, um, 
Like when you and I fall out about Beatles, we talk about King Crimson, you know. Well, you know, we're usually arguing right up until the point when I say, you know, live on tape from Dublin and then yeah. we get into we just our do it. And it yeah. All, yeah. all works out fine. But uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, they obviously have a muscle memory and they they, they know that it's a, a safe space for them to be making music. That once they're in that zone, you know, they can do it. I guess they'd rather be doing that than having another bloody meeting about Northern songs where they, they can't see eye to eye. They can see eye to eye or they have a language where they can, you know, finish the song like, you know, my name, look up the number. And again, it, 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 it's, it's, it's kind of touching, I think, that they go back to things like The Goons, which is a shared childhood memory. It's a point of reference and it's before the fame, before the business stuff kicks in, before all the madness. They were just teenagers listening to the goons. And yeah. so now they're kind of standing in a studio doing just reliving kind of childish. Well, it, it's something we mentioned in, in the Ballad of John Yoko episode, which is why we wanted to talk about the Ballad of John Yoko, which is this, this kind of alternate view of what happened in 69, yeah. which is sometimes seen as, oh, they all ride in January, get back. And then they made this big, you know, Abbey Road album. And there wasn't anything that happened in between. But this is one of the things that happens in between, that the two yeah. of them spend an evening goofing off recording vocals for this song. So it's, it's you know, it's the backing track is 67. The vocals are all 69, you know, the day after Paul's recording, Oh Darling. And, uh, you know, but as the 30th of April bleeds into the 1st of May, they are finishing this song and it's done. And it still doesn't appear for another, the guts of another year. So it still stays in the can. So it has this odd afterlife of what is this thing and where is it going to appear? That's it. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, it's definitely not appearing on Abbey Road. You, you know, no. I mean, can you imagine that that, that appearing on Abbey Road? Uh, where, you know, where would um, it sit? Well, we could get rid of Maxwell Silverhammer. You could get it at Maxwell Silverhammer. It's better than Maxwell Silverhammer, but it's 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 uh, yeah. Could you weave it into the medley? You wouldn't want to do that. You no. wouldn't want. To, you wouldn't want to do that. So so then yes, it just goes back in the box. Um, except except you mentioned before about Dennis O'Dell, who was the, the sort of involved in the film, and he gets a mention uh, or name checked on on the record, and um, he he's one of Apple's founding directors, and of course like. Anybody that was involved in Apple, he's got a book called uh, At the Apple's Core, and he tells this great story. So he says that um, there was he was involved in, in, in the production side of The Magic Christian. There's a party being held mm -hmm. uh, uh, in connection with the film. It's Dennis O'Dell's birthday, and this is on the 2nd of May. So this is three days after they finished, and he said Ringo plays him the song at this at this party. And uh, he thought, Dennis O'Dell thought no more about this. He thought this was a very nice thing that they had done for his birthday. He assumed <laughs> it was, they had kind of, it's your birthday. Ringo has obviously heard it. Dennis O'Dell takes it along, plays it, thinks no more about it. In March, 1970, he's at home. Dennis is at home, gets a phone call and a voice says, we know your name and we've got your number and puts the phone down. And it completely, as it would, completely freaks him out. He, this happens several times over the next three or four days, completely freaks him out. His wife gets some of these calls as well. And he says it was only when one of the callers introduced himself as, and I'm going to quote this, the candle-making leader of a, a commune in Philadelphia. I get calls from people like that all the time. <laughs> who explained that he had heard his name on the song had got somehow got hold of a London phone book. There are only two O'Dells listed in the London phone book at that time, and he was just phoning. 
because it was taking it as an instruction. And you think, given the given the terrible things that happened uh, with the White Album and people listening to that, and take it, that that you can understand being completely freaked out if somebody is thinking, uh, you know, uh, we we we've got we know your name and we've got your number. But it was a different time. Yeah, that was, that a different was, time. That was weird. Um, is there any chance then that the Beatles, like John and Paul, might have done that recording on the 30th of April as a gag for, for, for Dennis O'Dell? Maybe, maybe. Like they'll go, we'll, we'll rustle this up and we can play it for, for fun, maybe? But it seems, it seems the O'Dell part is buried in the middle of the song. It's not a big... Yeah, it's a very hard. It's, thing, it's, yeah. it's like a passing reference. Um, it seems more likely that that perhaps they know it's his birthday and they throw it in, and then Ringo kind of thinks, "Oh, I, you know, I'll, I'll play it." Um, but it's 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 that idea that Dennis O'Dell thinks they have recorded this entire six minute because presumably it's the, it's the full six just for his birthday, where he's got one mention in the middle of the song. He's in the party. They're going, "Is it over? Oh, it's not over. Okay, is it over now? Oh no, it's not over. Fine." Um, the by the way. Uh, apologies if this is a very stupid question. Is I'm used to it. I'm used to it. Dennis O'Dell in any way related to Chris O'Dell? I do not think so. I couldn't find any connection, but it no, just seems odd no. that there's two prominent Odells in the Beatles yes, universe. Yes, yes. I mean, I don't even know that she would be the other Odell in the London phone book because she was, uh, <laughs> she, she, oh, yeah. she, you know, she's American. She's come over. Uh, she's working at Apple. Um, we should get it. We should definitely get Chris O'Dell on uh, again. Her book just is, that one question. I just asked. Well, yeah. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We just want to ask you, are you related to Dennis O'Dell? No, thank you. Uh, and good night. Um, yeah. So, so again, so so after after Odell's uh, birthday party, it seems just go back back in the box, put the tape back on the shelf. So it almost came out as you know my name. Look up the number. Almost came out not as a Beatles song. It was scheduled to be released as the A side of a Plastic Ono Band single, uh, backed with uh, what's the new Mary Jane? How great a pairing is that? Well, they certainly feel like two sides of a certain coin, you know, um, that they're they're kind of... Uh... It's a kind of goon. What's the new Mary Jane? It's a kind of good goon thing, but uh, in a bad way. I hate that song. It, it, yeah, it feels as... Uh, what's the new Mary Jane feels like, you know my name, look up the number, without Paul. That's what it would sound like. Yes, I think that, I th yes, without the fun, without the humour. Yeah, without it, Paul saying, okay, we're going to knock this into a bit of shape. What's New Mary Jane is kind of the the amorphous, Paulless version. I always assumed that that was a song that they just made up in the studio. Yeah. But it's on it's the issue demos, yeah. Yeah, in the same way. It's a terrible thing. What was he thinking? Well, uh, I think, he, again, it's this thing where they would default into, we can make anything a song. You know, there's, there's a bit of that. I suppose, but 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 yes, John John edits the song. He cuts it from six minutes eight seconds to four minutes nineteen. So that's when the ska section gets goes missing. That's when the ska section goes missing. They get it ready. Apple actually have a. It, it's given a catalog number. Apple's thousand and two. It's given an indicative release date of December fifth of December nineteen sixty nine, and they put out a press release saying it will be John and Yoko singing and backed by quote many of the greatest show business names of today. And given that she's not on, uh, Yoko is not on. You look up my name. That's yeah. a bit of a thing. But then it was cancelled, um, and you've got to kind of assume that Paul got wind of this and said it's not happening.
Well, it's a Beatles song. <laughs> like it's just plain yeah. and simple. It's and that is value and worth. I mean, like like imagine the history now where you know we're trying to argue in a podcast that whether those two tracks are Beatles songs or not because they came out as a plastic ono band single. It'd be a very confusing thing. It would. I mean, imagine trying to argue whether or not uh, uh, Goodbye and uh, Come and Get It are Beatles song. It's kind of, they're, they're, you can as, you, as you said elsewhere, there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. That's just it. Um, um, and, but in, interestingly, the catalogue number is, is actually in the run-out groove of the B-side single of the letter so B. They so have, they, they, they had a pressing of, made. Yeah, they had a kind of pressing, uh, they had a stamper. Uh, yeah, that's the word. Done. That, they had a stamper done with the catalogue number. Um, and uh, so if you look, if you have an original um, uh, 1970 Let It Be single, if you look at the B-side, the, the, the thousand, 1002 uh, is stamped on the runoff group and then it's scratched out. Well, the other idea, the other notion of, um, you know, my name being a Plastic Ono Band single is that uh, it would have been quite fun. The Plastic Ono Band kind of have a vibe yeah. of being very serious and portentous yes. and, you know, political and mindful and all the rest. You know, my name, look up the number being a, a, a Plastic Ono Band song would uh, have changed the dynamic of what that brand meant, so to speak. I think so, because the, the person the person who, you know, yeah, the Plastic Ono Band is portentous and it is very serious. The person who brings humour to the Plastic Ono Band sometimes is Yoko. <laughs> um, sometimes she can be be, be as portentous as, as, uh, or pretentious as John, but I think the humour in the Plastic Ono Band uh, particularly now, particularly you know, yeah. uh, Yoko is just Yoko is just a genuinely funny person, um, and and I kind of think, well, maybe they could have re-recorded it and got her to sing it, or maybe not. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I guess that means that when we get to March nineteen seventy and Let It Be is coming out as a single ahead of the Let It Be album, which has obviously had this tumultuous build, they're looking around for a bit of value for the B-side. They could have stuck on another album track on the B-side. So somebody somewhere along the line says, this track is ready to go. It's cooked. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's part of that, you know, we, we've talked about that late 69 Schrodinger's Beatles thing again, that obviously there was Beatles business there that stepped in to say, you know, this Plastic Ono Band single isn't coming out and, you know, Paul might have been up in Scotland saying that or whatever, yep. we don't know. But there was still uh, a, a Beatles business happening and decisions being made in the realm of the Beatles. And so this song, as you say, it's the stamper that's been made from December. It's just yes. matched with a, a stamper for, for for Let It Be. And they're like, this will be our B-side. And it's the last original uh, non-album track that the Beatles put out in their lifetime. Yes, uh, absolutely. And uh, again, you, if you, if you um, get an original, they, they mistitle it on the label. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, uh, you know my name, look up my number is on the label, but of course it's the number, look up the <laughs> number. Um, so yeah, and um, it doesn't actually appear on an album until 1978 when it comes out on the rarities. Yeah, and, it's, and, and as well as being their last original B-side, it's their last official song it's the song that makes it to an album last yes, that right? that's, yes that's right that's right that's right that's right uh, so it, and then as you say it pops up on past masters volume two and it's i i hadn't you know right back to what you were talking about at the beginning about you know it's a perfect end to that it really is it really is a perfect end to it yeah yeah, it, it's it's a perfect end to Past Masters Volume Two because you know you it, it just it just carries you away on a boat and you just don't know what it what it what it's doing after all this kind of very yeah. serious kind of uh, 
uh, important, for want of a better word, music. Yeah, it's it's a great way to kind of pump pump the bubble. Yeah, and and again, what what they're doing is they're just referencing back the stuff they were doing listening to as teenagers so it's almost like circling all the way back around uh to love me do you know this this is this is their teenage uh their teenage years uh, are being presented to you at the very end of their career yeah and it's it's uh it's and it's a record that's still full of great little moments i love that really high bass note at the start where you don't really know what it is that do, 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 yep. do, and then yep. you realize it's the bass um you know the fact that it's one of those records now you know, you know, Paul has become well known for his multi-part uh, epics, but you kind of close your eyes and listen to it and you can hear all the bits and they just make sense in their own way, even with the ska bit in as well. I think the ska version is, is, is great. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's whatever you want it to be, you know. And uh, we want Paul to do it live. Well, now that would be great. It's obviously never been done live. No. Um, I don't even know if that, I've, I've never come across a cover version or anything of it. No, I don't. I'm not aware of a cover version. If anybody's no, aware I'm of a cover version, I'm, please. I'm sure somebody has done one. Everything's been covered at some yeah. point, but somebody must have done it uh, willfully as a cover version. But uh, is it is it really? Is Paul really right in saying it's his favourite song? He he's kind of thinking of the memory of it, or yes. I guess he gets to hear it maybe, particularly in that kind of late AC scenario of talking to Mark Lewis and. You know, what's great about You Know My Name, look up the number, is the unfamiliarity of it. And so it might be unfamiliar to Paul after 15 yes. years or so to come back and say, oh, actually, I'd forgotten about this. Yeah, I remember this. This is great. And what he'll be remembering, what he'll be remembering is standing in the studio around a single mic with John doing mm. silly voices and skits and thinking about the tunes. It's, I mean, it, it, you know. Uh, it's it's actually quite moving to think of it in those terms that this is kind of the two of them in the midst of all of the chaos and the, that that week that that period those ten days uh, when they get right is just so hellish for them in terms of business and then this is just a complete they're back kind of like the Nurk twins yeah and you know it's one of those Beatles songs as that it's it's generally quite unknown certainly to the the general population that you know if you if you played it in a shop people would be like what the hell is this you know or, or you know this is the Beatles um it, yeah it's got a, it's got a lot going for it and it's very warm and humorous and funny and catchy and catchy so I think I think it, you know it may not be the best Beatles song but it's Paul's favorite song and I can understand yeah why in 1988 he would be saying uh it is his favorite song and it, you know he's not saying it's the best song he's just saying it's his favorite song and yeah. It's it's a very you know I remember reading an interview with David Bowie and they said you what's your favorite Beatles song he said oh Revolution Number no. Nine and you think well that's all about that's just a whole, <laughs> you know that's just being done for effect and that's oh, Bowie. but you kind of think well this is Paul genuinely thinking yes this is this is a, a beautiful moment that we had and uh, in the midst of a lot of craziness and it's it's harking back to the naive early days. Oh, yeah, and I kind of feel that there's an awful lot that Paul, you know, I'm not saying he doesn't remember, but it just doesn't stick out, that a lot of it just kind of all melds together. But a song like You Know My Name does have the specifics. He does talk specifically about Mal digging the gravel, about Brian Jones rocking up. So it, it, it is a specific memory in a way that he mightn't remember a specific thing from many other songs because they're just all recorded on the hoof, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it could be one of my favourites, definitely. We love it. Yeah, we love it. Do you love it, folks? Obviously, uh, we want to send you back to listen to all the versions, the anthology version and the uh, 
mono B-side version. And that's about the only versions there are really. But if anybody has a tape of the 20 minute flute intro version, we'd be very much uh, gratified if you could pass it our way through, you know, through uh, legitimate channels, of course. Uh, but what do you think? We're available in all the usual places at BeatlesPod on Twitter and the Nothing Is Real Facebook group. Look for it. Stephen will let you in. We're past 4,000 members now. There's a ton of discussions going on there. It's um, it's quite the place, although I, 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 I never, never really, visit. Uh, you never visit. <laughs> Facebook scares me. Um, and also the, uh, the, uh, the website, nothingisrealpod.com, which has tons of stuff, access to all our social media stuff, but also playlists that we've mentioned in past podcasts. So if you've listened to, you know, if you're new to the show and you've just listened, go in there and you can see playlists like alternate versions of albums and all sorts of different things that we've put together, playlists themed by years. We've got our YouTube channel, like and subscribe to that because we've put bits and pieces on it there. Um, but yes, thank you for listening. And for now, my name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we'll see you next time. Bye. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.